This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Kevin DeYoung is senior pastor of the University Reformed Church in Lansing, Michigan, husband and father of five children. He blogs regularly at the Gospel Coalition and is author and editor of several books, including The Good News We Almost Forgot, Why We're Not Emergent, Don't Call It a Comeback, What is the Mission of the Church, Just Do Something, and Why We Love the Church. All these titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Kevin, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks. Glad to be here, Scott. I want to focus on the book that you did with Greg Gilbert, What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. Since the rise of the modern missions movement, we've had a missions consciousness for a long time. But in the last several years, there's been a renewed interest in mission, not missions exactly, but mission and being missional, and a lot of debate about who is missional, who isn't missional, what is it. So let's talk about that. What's the difference between missions and missional in the contemporary discussion? It's a great question, and I'm not always exactly sure. Certainly, missions in the traditional sense has been thought of as usually overseas, evangelistic, church planting, reaching people with the gospel. That's what we send missionaries to do. So missional would embrace that, but would want to see itself, I think, as a a broader category, Uh, not just going and sending, but what we do here in our backyards. And one of the hard things about the term is it's really become a kind of junk drawer term that all sorts of stuff gets thrown into it. So you have some people, missional simply means we care about people. We want to get out of our holy huddle. We want to do things in the community, and that's fine. And yet there are others that there's a whole host of assumptions about social justice versus gospel proclamation and how those two relate. And missional then in the broader scheme of conversation can refer to transforming cities and building communities, and missional church might have an art fair or might run an after-school reading clinic, and all of these would be seen as missional things because they bless their communities. So it has a a variety of definitions used by a variety of different groups, Mm -hmm. and sometimes I've even gotten the impression that it is a kind of code, particularly with those who are associated with either the emergent or emerging movements. It it almost functions like a code to include some people, we are missional, and exclude others. You out there are not missional. And I remember reading a writer who identifies as Reformed saying that those people are beginning to use the word missional. We need a new word which I thought that was fascinating because it would seem that if the point was to rethink the mission of the church and behind that, the mission of God and the world, the mission of Christ and all of that, then when people begin to take up the term and ask the question, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was puzzled and somewhat amused by the notion that, well, we've lost control of the word, and so we need a new word to make sure that we're in control of it. Yeah, that, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think there are, there are really two equal opposite dangers here. One is that some conservative Christians might 
automatically be suspicious of anyone who uses the word missional and think, oh, it's probably a merchant light, or they're probably sold out, they, they don't really care about Jesus or evangel or something. And, and that's a mistake, and, and we want to try to guard against that in the book, just because people use the term in so many different ways. But w- what you're alluding to is, is a danger on the other side, and it is a real danger that it becomes a sort of code word for who's in and, and who's out. And often there are sort of cultural expressions that would be considered missional. And so if you have a church that sings hymns and has a liturgy and preaches the gospel and teaches its members to evangelize and share the gospel with their co-workers and to be faithful citizens in the world, people went, well, is that really missional? You don't count as missional. Yeah, Because right. you don't look like us. You're maybe not hip like us. And you're not engaging the world in transforming culture or blessing the nations the way that we are. Right, yeah, that would certainly be the danger. But we ought not to be afraid of the adjective missional, but we do want to ask what it means in a particular context and usage. I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that is there is a, a notion that if a church is holding an art fair, that counts as missional because it's blessing the community. Now, that's very interesting because in other contexts, that would have been described as transforming culture or engaging culture. When did engaging the culture become missional? Yeah, I think as people would look in, you know, there's a lot of seminal mission literature. I mean, a lot of this has trickled down from missiologists. I don't know how many of the popular level guys have have read David Bosch or some of these other, they probably read Newbegin. But some of this has trickled down this impetus to want to have a broader definition of mission. So mission becomes, our mission is the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And if the mission of God is to ultimately renew the cosmos, to re-usher in shalom, then the argument goes, shouldn't that be the mission of the church? And so anything then that seems to be bringing this new kind of creation to bear on the world is part of our mission. And missional, I think, is, is part of the new term to describe all of that. So you talk about an art festival at your church, and you know what, if a church wants to do that, I don't have a problem if they want to, you know, show off local artists. I just am concerned when that becomes the measure of a church's faithfulness over against churches that aren't doing that sort of thing, or if we exaggerate the importance. I mean, if a church wants to have farm implements in their front yard for local farmers to look at, okay, whatever. But there's a difference between the mission of the church as the Great Commission and trying to be involved with these things as we have gifted people and feel led. And that's a question I want to come back to later in our discussion. The farm implements? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is it that the visible institutional church is actually commissioned to do? Th- right. That's a serious question. Should the church as church—I'm not asking whether Christians right. should be making art and engaging contemporary culture in a variety of ways, whether through oil painting or farm implements. By the way, if you haven't seen Carhenge— <laughs> You, you, I haven't. Okay, well, I, I actually haven't. I've seen pictures of it. I, I need to go see it, but that's in my home state, and that's— And where is that for our listeners out there? It's in Nebraska, oh. and it's, I think it's near Alliance, and you can see it. If you get off the interstate, you can see that somebody has taken a, a bunch of old cars and made car hinge. It's supposed to be quite striking. Redeeming culture. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. So we want to come back and talk about that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In defense of those who want to reconsider mission and being missional, to what are they reacting? Are they reacting to a kind of reduction 
a reductionism in mission where the only thing that counts is making sure that your neighbor has prayed the prayer, walked the aisle, and signed the card. Yeah, I, I think that certainly some of what they're reacting against is a decisionism, reducing the Great Commission to making decisions for Christ rather than make disciples. Now, making a disciple may involve making a decision, but certainly that's some of what they're reacting against or the need for speed sort of missions philosophy. We just go in there and we just blitz the place and do evangelism and count how many people pray the prayer, and that's what missions entails. And and they're also reacting against a notion that mission is only something that happens in other parts of the world and not here in our backyard in America. And that that's where they read Leslie Newbegin and his experience and coming back to Britain and want to say, look, increasingly, our country is post-Christian to some degree, and our neighbors don't know Jesus, and we have social economic problems, and shouldn't we be involved here rather than just sending people across the world to do those things? And those are certainly good impulses and some of what they're reacting against. We're just as likely a mission field as anywhere in the world. Some writers appeal to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Exodus mm. nineteen five through 6 to justify this sort of broader view of mission. And this opens up a whole host of hermeneutical questions. How do we right. interpret Scripture? What do these passages really intend to do in their own context? And then how are they understood by the New Testament? Help us understand that a little bit. Genesis 12 is, of course, a great missions passage— interpreted in the right way. So Abram is called, it's pagan out in Ur of the Chaldees, and God promises to bless the whole world through him, and you'll be blessed to be a blessing. So we've heard those sermons. I think what some of the missional folks want to do is understand Genesis 12 to be a sort of Great Commission text for us. So as one author said, you could summarize the Great Commission as, go be a blessing. Or I've heard another one of the missional authors say, we shouldn't have an evangelism strategy, we should have a blessing strategy. So how can I go and bless my community by tutoring kids and planting a tree and painting a fence? And that's really what Abraham was supposed to do, was go bless the world. Well, there's a couple problems with that. One gets into a lot of finer points of Hebrew grammar and how you translate that. But but I think the best scholars and translations have understood that this is more a promise to Abraham that through him the world will be blessed rather than he's supposed to design a blessing strategy. And I think that's what you see in Genesis, that the, the blessing of God's covenant is weaving through this chosen line really despite themselves. There, there's no indication that, that Abram was sort of scratching his head. How do I help the Amalekites? course, good for us to help people. That, that's not what we see Abram doing there. More importantly, you talk about the New Testament. When Paul hearkens back in Galatians 3, his understanding of sharing in the Abrahamic blessing is that you put faith in Abraham's seed, in Christ. So if we are to be true to that Abrahamic promise and we want people to be blessed with the Abrahamic blessing, then we ought to put a priority on proclamation, on disciple-making, on leading people to believe in this Christ, because that's the blessing that was foretold. And real briefly, the Exodus 19 passage about being a holy nation or a kingdom of priests, I think there's sometimes a a misunderstanding that, uh, and we read too much into this priest language that, well, weren't priests intermediaries between God and man, and so that's what we are, we're these priests who communicate God's presence to people, sort of incarnate God to others. You can make a better argument that the nation of Israel was a priesthood because it was holy, that the priests were, first of all, set apart as those holy men and 
really who helped further the redemptive work of God, not the incarnational work so much. That's why Christ is the high priest in his redemptive intercessory work. So the church, yes, we believe in the royal priesthood of all believers in the sense that we all are holy, we all matter to God, but I think to read into that a whole developed incarnational missional theology is is making too much out of those passages. And First Peter does say something to us about what it is to be a kingdom, a nation of priests, and it's not in a cultural context, it's in a redemptive right context and and the other thing i wonder just as you were giving you know that thumbnail sketch of some excellent material in the volume what is the mission of the church making sense of social justice shalom and the great commission which is available in the bookstore at Westminster Ooh, Seminary, California <laughs> bookstore as you are giving that thumbnail sketch i'm thinking well in their account of particularly genesis 12 which is so important to paul haven't they turned a promise which is what God is going to do for us mm-hmm. in Christ into something that we must do. And so in reformational terms, they've turned the gospel, the good news, right. into law, something that we have to do. Yeah, I think that's one of the the hermeneutical mistakes that some of the missional folks make. It's equating promises with commands, or even more subtly, looking at what God will do, and then assuming that because he will do it, he's calling us to take part in it. So if God's plan is ultimately to renew the whole creation and to give us a new cosmos, then shouldn't it be our plan to participate with him? Well, that could be, but you would have to demonstrate that because everything that God promises to us, as you said, Scott, it doesn't necessarily mean then we are commanded to do it. So God will, in the new heavens and the new earth, judge all of the wicked and slay them and cast them into outer darkness— is that part of the mission of the church? No, not not exactly. Uh, so we can't just say God is going to do it, therefore we have to help him do it, because many of these things are promises that he guarantees to us will happen, and so our work and our mission is to testify to them rather than to help him bring them about. Somewhere in the book, and I, I can't remember where I saw it, you distinguish between building the kingdom— and building for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting discussion. And I want to connect that with the discussion in the book about social action and being missional. Help us tie those things together. What's the distinction between building the kingdom, which is language that evangelical and Reformed people use commonly, and building for the kingdom? And somewhere you also pointed out that most of the verbs associated with the kingdom are verbs of receiving rather than building. Right. And again, when people talk about, I'm building for the kingdom, I think I know what they mean. And generally, they're meaning good things. I'm I'm trying to do Christian things. I'm trying to help people. So that's fine. I wouldn't want people to be overly alarmed. And yet, we do want to try to use scriptural language as scripture uses it, and you're absolutely right that the verbs associated with the kingdom are inherit, receive, enter. And these are all verbs of waiting, right? Yes. If if a grandpa puts you in his will, there's not a lot you can do short of committing a felony to speed that up, right? Yeah. And, you know, we all believe in some element of already and not yet, and that the kingdom is here and, and it's coming. But the kingdom I see in the New Testament is never something that we're told to create or to build or to even expand. Now, we can live according to kingdom values. We can build for the kingdom and for its purposes. But I wish that 
Christians would use church language more often um, if they're going to talk about building, because Christ does say he's going to build his church upon this rock. But I think the kingdom is just a confusion of categories. To use the sports cliche, I think the kingdom is what it is. It's sort of, you know, the analogy we use in the book, it's like the sun. Now, do you say, I'm going to build the sun, I'm going to grow the sun, I'm going to expand the sun? No. S-U-N. Yeah, S-U-N, thank you. Can the sun break in? Can you feel its rays warmer or hotter? Can clouds disperse so that it's, it's more present than it was? Yes. In the same way, I think that's what the kingdom does. It breaks in, it infiltrates. But to talk about expanding it, building it, growing it seems to be a confusion of categories. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. How missional by the contemporary definition of that term used by say, advocates of the emergent or emerging movements, how missional was the New Testament church actually? How socially engaged was the New Testament church? How transformational was the New Testament church? Where was the art show in any of the New Testament churches? Where's the social program? Where's the food program for any civil society in any part of the New Testament? I mean, I think that's a good point. And when you look at Acts, I mean, if we say, even if we have to make the distinction between what's descriptive and what's normative in Acts, but you see there the early church, and it's a, a definite continuation of the Great Commission, it's certainly in Luke's gospel, as Luke-Acts is connected, uh, that Acts 1-8 is the fulfillment of the Great Commission in Luke 24, that the gospel is going to go forth and you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So if you trace Acts, literally every chapter is about the expansion of the Word, and it's the Word did this, and the Word did that, and the Word went forward, and then many people were saved, and the Word did this. Now, certainly, as the apostles ministered as a demonstration of power or to have compassion on people, they would heal. So there's nothing here in the book that we mean to discourage compassion, mercy ministry. It's just to have the right theological understanding of what it is and to understand, as you say, what is the mission of the church? Because it just seems like incontrovertible fact that as you look at the early church in the New Testament, they were so focused on proclamation, teaching, discipleship, church building and church establishment, and not these other things that you're talking about. And for Christians to be involved in them, wonderful. We really want to emphasize that. No apologies. But it's not what you see the institutional church doing. And in the post-Acts world, you know, drawing inferences from the Catholic epistles, the general epistles, and from Mm -hmm. Paul's pastoral letters, there just isn't much reflection in those documents and it's hard to infer from them that the church is actively doing, the visible institutional church is actively doing the kinds of things that we're sometimes told that we must do. Must do. For example, yeah. I'm always struck by 
Peter's language that you know we pray for rulers, Paul's language that we live quiet and peaceful, godly lives. Mm-hmm. Now, there aren't many books being written about the seven steps to living quiet, peaceful and godly lives. And yet that's the explicit, unequivocal teaching of the Word of God. Yeah. And I think you see, too, a confusion often on what the church is doing within the church and assuming sometimes that reading into it, church doing this for the whole community. So it's, That's a huge point. Would you say that again, please? Yeah. There's a lot of confusion in the New Testament, especially in the mercy ministry sort of passages, the church doing this for the church— And what people read into is this is the church doing this for the whole community. Matthew 25, least of these. Yes. Clarify that for us. Well, I mean, the explicit language is the least of these brothers of mine. So we're talking about fellow believers, and I think a good case can be made, and I believe I referenced Craig Blomberg uh, alluding to this, that if you connect that language with Matthew 10, where Jesus is saying, if you honor, if you speak my name, then I will honor you if you don't, that he's connecting it to probably traveling missionaries, to itinerant teachers coming through, that whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, to aid them, to help them, to further their ministry. You know, so often people just, least of these, and that's just sort of code for a whole bunch of other things. Whatever, whatever the speaker wants you to think or whatever the speaker wants you to do. Right. When the explicit, I think, instruction there is the church absolutely has a responsibility to care for its own people. We see that in the pastoral epistles, in the deliberate instructions to care for widows. The closest thing— Within the congregation. Yeah, within the congregation. And even there, Paul has all sorts of rules. Well, are they widows who are really widows, and how old are they? And Galatians 6.10 is, is a key passage— do good to all people as you have opportunity, especially to the household of faith. That's what I wish we'd hear more of, because we see there, number one, there's an especially, that the household of faith is a priority for us. We also see Paul says, do good to everyone, okay? You have a command as you have opportunity. So he's not laying down a great social transformation plan, but he is saying, as you have opportunity, as you are walking by the Samaritan and you see somebody hurt, do good. You're a human being. This other person is a human being. You're both made in the image of God. Absolutely. You're commanded to love your neighbor, and that person is your neighbor. A Christian doesn't ask in the way that was asked, who's my neighbor? If somebody's lying, bleeding in front of you, that person's your neighbor, and you have to love that person. Right. But that's a little different than setting up the church blood transfusion ministry. Right. And one of the things, I think, to understand the relationship between the kingdom and the church— I would say the church is is like the outpost of the kingdom, or it's an embassy of the kingdom in a foreign land that, you know, you think what an embassy does, it lives by another nation's rules, it works for another nation's interests, and it's to represent that nation. Well, that's what the church does relative to the kingdom. And when you understand the church as the outpost of the kingdom, I think a lot of things fall into place. So, okay, in the kingdom— all needs are supposed to be cared for because it's, it's heaven breaking in on earth. Well, can you do that in the whole world? No, but your local church ought to have such generosity and care for one another that all the needs are met. In the kingdom, there is no place for the wicked or the unbelieving. Does that mean the church has a, a ministry of killing sinners? <laughs> no. 
Which is an important point. Now, we, yes. we laugh, but in a lot of the rhetoric, both on the right and the left, mm-hmm. there's a kind of implicitly theocratic yes. ethos that isn't often or always or consistently questioned and assumptions about the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and national Israel and the commission that she was given and the New Covenant Church and the commission that we've been given. So flesh that out yeah, for Yeah, I mean, because as strangers and aliens, as exiles here in the land. So if the church is a kingdom embassy or outpost, then our job is not to kill all the sinners, but we do have to discipline those, and we welcome into church membership those who are part of the kingdom. So that's where it manifests itself. But otherwise, we get into all these problems you're talking about. And I think on both the right and the left, there's an implicit sort of Christendom model. It's really ironic that the people who want the church to be the patron of the arts are also the strongest, yeah, we don't like Constantine and we don't like Christendom. But what they're asking for is a kind of Christendom model. Constantinian model, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's blind spots on both sides so that people on the right in this sort of motif may think of, okay, law, politics, that's where we're really bringing to bear all of this. And on the left, they ignore that, and it's social services, suffering. So it tends to be a select list of things that we want to see the church do in the world. And to understand the church as a stranger and alien and called to be a faithful presence in a hostile world makes better sense of the New Testament. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Finally, and appropriately, one of the topics in this discussion is the question of the biblical doctrine of shalom, mm-hmm. peace. Mm-hmm. And that's connected, and, and the book connects that with how we think about the relations between heaven and earth and the end of all things. How should we think about the biblical doctrine of shalom touching the mission of the church and the nature of the church? Yeah. Well, that's a huge question that touches a lot of different threads. You know, one of the passages from Jeremiah 29 where the exiles are in Babylon, seek the peace, seek the shalom of the city, for in their shalom you shall find your shalom. That's what Jeremiah is telling, the Lord is telling the exiles. Because the situation there was the false prophets were saying, two years max, you're going to go back. And Jeremiah is saying, no, you're going to be here a long time, so you might as well build houses, establish roots, have a family, get married, and really, you're going to want to do what's best for Babylon, because that's going to be your home for a while. So seek their peace. And I think that's a model for us. We seek the peace of our cities. We're for our our nation, even as we're sometimes against our nation, but we're for our nation, for our communities, for our cities and states. And yet, ultimately, was there this kind of shalom in Babylon? Well, they were going to be destroyed. And the shalom, we can't read into that language in the Bible that it always is referring to this ultimate salvific peace that's going to translate into all eternity. Sometimes it just means, you know, seek their well-being, seek their welfare. It finally connects this whole discussion to continuity and discontinuity with the new heavens and the new earth. And the missional side would strongly want to emphasize a lot of continuity so that what you do now sort of makes it into the next world. And it really hinges on how do you read Second Peter 3 and that language. I think the best way to understand the destruction of this world and the coming of the next is to look earlier in Second Peter 3, where he likens it to the flood. So the flood destroyed the earth. Did it, did it obliterate every atom? No. But was it also sort of this culture-rescuing event? No. The idea is there's going to be some discontinuity, 
some continuity, and the Bible just doesn't seem to put a lot of emphasis on whether Bach is going to be in heaven. <laughs> well, Bach will be there, but you know, his music, was that a great contribution to heaven or not? And when you're listening to a symphony, are you somehow participating in, in a small way in the new heavens and the new earth? Or do we want to suggest that when we're gathered as a covenant assembly and the Word of God, particularly the gospel, is being administered to us in the preached Word and in the sacraments, that in that small way, we're already beginning mm. to participate in the new heavens and the new earth. Right. I mean, what we do know about the new heavens and the new earth, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that God and the Lamb are, are at the center of it, and the worship of God and the Lamb, and unceasing worship and adoration. And it seems mainly what God wants to tell us about heaven and the new heavens is it's holy, it's safe, it's glorious, and it centers all on Christ and on God the Father together with the Holy Spirit. So all of these other questions, you know, are we going to be listening to wonderful symphonies in heaven? Yeah. Probably. I mean, that that sounds great, but let's not import too much meaning into it. When you listen to that great symphony, think, praise God, he gave some good gifts here to maybe some believers, maybe some non-believers, and I'm thankful for it. And if it speaks something to the creativity and beauty of our Lord, then that's wonderful. But let's not think that I'm going to make heaven a little bit better if I plant a tree today. No, you might make your park better, and that's a good thing to do. But let's just speak of it with the right sort of theological categories. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.